Man, please turn with me to, to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.6, this morning we are continuing to work through each of the articles that are in the, the Second London Baptist Confession, which essentially summarizes the things that we believe as Christians. And it's important for us to not only be familiar with what we believe, but to have a growing understanding of what we believe. Because only when we understand what we believe and grow in what we know to believe to be true can we live in a way that is consistent with what we believe and we can live in a way that is consistent with the very character and heart of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we don't come here this morning in any work that we have done. We come here not trusting in our own selves, but we come here grounded in the finished work of Christ. We appeal to you based on his work, Lord, that you might teach us and instruct us and that you would strengthen us in our faith and that we might be encouraged and given the zeal to live our lives in a manner that pleases you and that is with faith and an ever-growing faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. George Whitfield had once given this illustration in a sermon about a man who, who died and went up to the pearly gates and was met by the Apostle Peter. And this man goes on to ask the Apostle Peter, who are we going to find in heaven? Will we see Catholics in heaven? He says, no, you're not going to find Catholics in heaven. Well, will we find Methodists in heaven? No, you're not going to find Methodists in heaven either. Well, are we going to find Lutherans in heaven? No, not them either. Well, will we find Presbyterians in heaven? No, you're not going to find Presbyterians in heaven. Well, well is it Baptists? Will you find Baptists in heaven? And the Apostle Peter says, no, you're not going to find Baptists in heaven either. Well then, good sir, would you please tell me, who will we find in heaven? And the Apostle Peter says, it's Christians. It's Christians that you will find in heaven. That illustration really gets to a fundamental question about what it is to be a Christian. What does it mean? Will we find people in heaven, just about anybody who professes to be a Christian and believes or says that they believe? Or what about when we consider the other religions of the world? who claim to worship the same God, will we find them as well in heaven? So these questions essentially get to the root of the matter, because the only way that we can adequately or rightly answer the question of who will we find in heaven and how do we get there is by first starting with the person of God. Only then can you truly understand 
whether or not you yourself could find, will find yourself in heaven, and who else will you expect to find in heaven? It was A.W. Tozer who once said that what comes to your mind when thinking about the subject of God is the most important thing about you. Because what you think about God will determine everything else in your life. As we think about the world and everything in the world and everything happening in the world, as we think about our purpose and meaning in life, as we think about what is man, and that is a question that our society is seeking to answer for us today, the only way that we can actually come to a right understanding of the answers to those questions is by first trying to understand who God is. Who is God? How has he made himself known? What has he revealed about himself? Because it is the question of God that will determine or affect everything else in your life. However, before we turn to this question, we need to first address a problem, and that is a problem of categories and definitions. You see, because there's a problem with defining what it means to be an evangelical. Essentially, an evangelical, by definition, is someone who believes in the gospel tenets. That is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who's born of a virgin, who died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven and will one day return. Basically, if you believe those things, then you are considered to be an evangelical. The only problem is that the growing circle of evangelicalism, or that definition, continues to grow and expand so that you can be an orthodox evangelical or, or a liberal evangelical, or a Catholic evangelical, or a feminist evangelical, or a gay evangelical, or even a pro-abortion evangelical. The ministry Ligonier several months ago came out with their annual study, the State of Theology, where they try to assess what is the state of theology and what it means to be a Christian and the state of evangelicalism in North America. Now, I always take studies like this like a, with a grain of salt because it is impossible to actually interview every single person who claims to be a Christian. Nevertheless, I think their, what they, their conclusions can be pretty telling. So, For example, in the state of evangelicalism or in the state of Christianity in North America, one out of four people believes that Jesus is created. That is, that Jesus is not divine that Jesus actually has a beginning. 58% of Christians believe that Jesus accepts all other religions. More than half believe that the Holy Spirit is actually not a person, but actually a force. What does that even mean? It's like, like, is that like the Star Wars like the kind of force? More than half believe that they can actually worship God alone. In other words, I can be in my own home and I can read my own Bible and I can just perhaps live stream the service each and every week and that's acceptable to God. So in conclusion, the word Christian or the word evangelical does not really tell us much anymore. I mean, how can so many people who believe different things and claim to read the same Bibles and go to church every single week believe so differently and even live so differently than others who also identify as evangelical or as a Christian. 
but we must begin with God. In Exodus 3, verses 13 to 17, is the interaction between Moses and God, this burning bush, as Moses is called to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 3.13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He goes on to tell them that he must go and deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And there's three things that we learn just from this passage alone about God. One of the first things we see here is that God exists. God reveals himself to Moses. We also see here that God acts. He doesn't stand aloof from his creation. He's not distant from his creation but he exists and he has a personal involvement in his creation, especially his covenant people. And what we also learn is that God can be known. He's revealed himself, he acts, and therefore he can be known. He's made himself known to Moses. He intends to make himself known to his people. We see the same thing in Genesis, in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see from the very beginning, God exists. We see that God acts. He creates his creation. He creates Adam in his own image. And then he goes on to reveal himself, to make himself known to his people. And God continues to make himself known. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God makes himself known through the prophets, through the priests, through his commandments. We see that God makes himself most vividly known through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And as New Testament believers, as those who walk on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, we also turn to the scriptures themselves because the scriptures also reveal to us this God who created all things and has revealed himself. And so for us to be able to understand anything, for us to be able to understand who will be in heaven, for us to be able to understand what life is essentially about, we must begin with God. We must devote ourselves to learning more and more about God because it is disastrous not to. Without the knowledge of God, you essentially live blindfolded walking throughout your life without a compass, without a map. It's like being given an instrument, such as a violin, that you've never played before, and said and been told you're going to play in this orchestra, you're going to have this special performance, and you have no idea what you're going to do, you have no idea how to do it, because you've never even laid hands on the instrument. Such is the case without a proper knowledge and understanding of who God is. Apart from knowing who God is, how can we know what life is essentially about? The problem of this expanding circle of Christianity or the definition of evangelicalism is not just the problem of the lack of knowledge of God, 
but it's also a problem of thinking little of God. The late J.I. Packer had once said, Christian minds, Christian minds have been conformed to this modern spirit, the spirit that is, that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. The person who believes in God has little thoughts of God if he believes that God is accepting of all religions. When it says explicitly in the scriptures that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. You have little thoughts of God right, if you approve the slaying of children in the womb. You have little thoughts of God if you feel or, or are convinced that, uh, that repentance is unnecessary in the Christian life. You have little thoughts of God if you believe that Jesus is created. You have little thoughts of God if you believe that the Holy Spirit is just a force and not a person. You have little thoughts of God if you think that personal happiness is more important than truth. Every single person without exception has an opinion about God. And their opinion about God determines exactly how they live their lives. And perhaps the most important thing about a person is not just what they think about God, as important as that is, but perhaps just as important, if not even more important, is the fruit of their life. Because if I could see your deeds, your works, your actions, your thoughts, every word that you mutter under your breath, that could tell me a whole lot about what you actually think about God. Regardless of what you say you think about God. It's not just a problem of the lack of the knowledge of God, it's the problem of also having little thoughts of God. But we must begin with God. So secondly, we turn to the subject of God, the God who can be known. Last week we began with the Holy Scriptures. And it's right and fitting that we do so because it is the Holy Scriptures that reveal to us the person of God. This is where we get the gospel. This is where we hear the gospel, receive the gospel. This is where we understand our lives and how we are to live our lives rightly. We begin with the Scriptures. And the Scriptures point also to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the revelation of God. Hebrews 1 verse 1 tells us long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is a perfect revelation of God. So we look to Jesus for us to be able to understand who God is. But returning to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, our confession defines God in this way. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that one cannot approach. He 
is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Right, such a comprehensive definition of God. And it's amazing that you can even pack a definition of the greatness of God into such a definition. And this is all taken from the Scriptures. But we are not, if we want to have high thoughts of God, it is not enough to think about God scientifically. But we also must consider the language of emotions, the language of affections, because you can certainly read a description about God like that one, as comprehensive and as wonderful and as glorious as that is, and yet have nothing happening in your heart. Where it doesn't really do anything for you, where it doesn't really change your life at all, or it gives you any desire to change your heart at all. But when we think about God, we want to have right and accurate and high thoughts of God. It's not enough to think about Him scientifically, but we must also consider the language of our affections as well. Because when we think about God and think about how high and holy He is, in the language of affections, we might also say that God is the most glorious being, set apart and like no other, and no other will be like Him, and there will never be any other like Him. He is incomprehensible and his ways are past finding out. He is a God. He is God and there's no other. He is the standard of all righteousness and justice and purity and holiness and glory. That he is magnificent and that he is awesome in the truest sense of that word, not in the flippant way that we tend to use that word. That he is matchless in might, powerful beyond anyone's wildest dreams, most free, for there is nothing that limits God from doing anything that he well pleases. That he is so profoundly complex and yet understandable. That he is the fountain of all goodness. That he is majestic, infinite, eternal, more radiant than the sun itself. Excellent, and all his excellencies are perfect that he is the greatest treasure that you can ever gaze your sight upon, that he is able to see all events and all people in all times, all at the same time, that his mind can comprehend all things, that he knows everything about everything and even knows you and each and every one of you personally without his mind even blowing up. And that he is, that no matter what it is that you try, that you prize or treasure most in this world, that knowing God is infinitely more worthy and valuable. So given what we know about God, given what the scriptures tell us about the greatness of God, how can we have little thoughts of God? It is no wonder that Jesus says that eternal life is to know God. And God has made it that no one can truly come to know him apart from his son. You cannot know God rightly. You cannot have high thoughts of God without knowing Jesus. 
because Jesus is the fullest revelation of God himself. And speaking of the greatness and the bigness of God, isn't it absolutely incomprehensible to think that the greatness of God can be actually packaged in the person of his son, born as a babe to a virgin. That in 30 years of his life, Jesus, as the son of God, the very God of very God, that he can continue to live this life as a God-man and not have sort of his, his humanity blown up as it contains the greatness of his godness. John 1.14 tells us that the word, that is, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he is the one who makes him known. Jesus is the exact representation of God. It's why Jesus is surprised when Philip asks him, show us the Father and it's enough for us. To which he responds, have you been with me this whole time, Philip? And do not understand that to see him is to see the Father. So we don't want to be a people with little thoughts of God. And we do not want to be a people who have higher thoughts of men or even of our own selves and to have higher thoughts of God. Christians who have big thoughts of God are in a class of their own. And what are they like? Those who have big thoughts of God, they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. They love the things of God. They love goodness. They love purity. They love holiness. They love his word. They love the gospel. They love Jesus Christ. They love the things that God loves. They love God's people. It is one of those things that is easy to affirm. If you were to ask someone, do you love God's people? Sure, yes, of course I do. But then it's a different question to ask, well, then how would they know it? You put your money where your mouth is. How do I know that you love me if you say that you love me? They love, or they love the things that God loves and they hate what God hates. They hate sin. They hate injustice. They hate wickedness. They hate sexual immorality. They hate impurity. They hate wickedness. They hate evil in the world. People with big thoughts of God, they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. They are also satisfied in Christ. And why should they be satisfied in Christ? Because Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure of the Christian life. Because Jesus Christ is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Because Jesus Christ is the one who did not come, have to come down into this world to save us, but he did anyway. Even though our sins were reprehensible, yet he came and lived amongst men and died on the cross to bear the weight of our sins and the judgment that our sins deserved so that those who believe may have eternal life. That is why Jesus is the greatest treasure. And that is why those who have big thoughts of God are satisfied in Christ. And satisfaction is oftentimes, for many Christians, a daily struggle, isn't it? It is a battle, oftentimes, for contentment. 
to find and rest in the satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ. But those who do treasure Christ, they consider the battle worth fighting. And they continue to trudge uphill, fighting for that contentment and joy in the Lord because they know that Christ satisfies His people. Those with big thoughts of God, their lives are growing in conformity to what God demands. Not a sin is perfection, but they are growing in conformity to what God demands. It is possible for one to have, to say that they have big thoughts of God, and yet know little of God. A person can have the right theology, the right doctrine, know theology more than anybody else, know more than most others how to interpret the scriptures, and yet still have very little thoughts of God. How is that so? How can that be? Well, if their lives don't display what they say they think, well, then you have very little thought of God. There's unrepentant sin. You're unwilling to be corrected, unwilling to change your ways, unwilling to do what God requires you to do, then you really have very little thoughts of God. I mean, the greatest theologians in the entire world are the demons themselves. And yet they are damned. You become like what you behold. Those who behold God rightly and accurately through His Word have a growing understanding of who God is, also have lives that are growing in conformity to the kind of life that the Scriptures demand us to live. We want to have big thoughts of God and continue to expand our minds and hearts by thinking deeply and growing in our knowledge of the Lord and having living the kind of life that such knowledge demands. Because the one who truly understands who God is through His Son, Jesus Christ, they are continually changed. The pursuit of the knowledge of God always produces a growing conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. So we want to continue to grow in our thoughts of God, having big thoughts of God. And how do we do this? Well, firstly, you read your Bible. You go to the scriptures that reveal to us the person of God, the person of Christ. A student will spend hours upon hours reading and studying the topics or the giving specialty because they desire to, because school demands it, because they have, they're paying for their education or their parents are paying for their education. Having the Spirit of God indwelling us and having a love for the Lord, why, why would you not want to grow in your learning of who God is? To understand who He is, to understand what He loves, what He hates, what he continues to do today, what he has done through his word, and knowing the high price that Jesus Christ paid for our salvation, why would we want to in any way devalue what Christ has done? 
by not giving our lives to this pursuit of knowing God and Christ. Because Jesus paid with the price of his life for us to be able to have this direct access to the Lord so that we might know him. So read your Bibles. For some of you, you might have these moments where you're finding yourself like the Ethiopian eunuch. You're reading the scriptures, but you don't understand. Ask. Ask someone you know who understands the scriptures. Ask so that you may understand, so that you may grow to know more of the Lord. Study the character of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon had once said, No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind and thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Now, if you know Spurgeon, he's not talking about sort of a scientific study of the person of Jesus Christ, but he's very much talking about personal relationship, knowing Jesus personally that this is the greatest study that you could ever devote your life to. Look to the Gospels. Pick a Gospel. Study the person of Jesus Christ. What does he say? What, does he, what doesn't he say? What does he do? What does he not do? What does he love? What does he hate? How does he pray? How does he preach? What, is, what does he teach? And knowing this and praying as well, you'll grow more into the conformity of the person of Jesus Christ and grow in your knowledge of Him. Thirdly, read solid Christian literature. Knowing God by J.I. Packer is an excellent, excellent book on the subject. Knowing Christ by Mark Jones, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, there's a lot of secondary literature out there that helps us to understand the God that has saved us and the God that we worship. Now, third and lastly, the Holy Trinity. If you want to have high, reverent, respectful, big thoughts of God, then we must also have right thoughts of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity definition is that God is absolutely and eternally one essence subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division and without replication of the essence. Kind of a heady definition, but essentially it's saying that there's one God and three persons. One God and three distinct persons. Matthew 3.16 says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we see the divinity of the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes from God and descends on the person of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is not a force, but the Spirit is a person. 
John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the, judge, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So here we see the equality of the Father and the equality of the Son. For the Father raises the dead and gives life to whom he will, and the Son also has judgment, or given the authority to execute judgment. So we see that Jesus Christ is equal with God, then telling us, or teaching us then, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is also God. So we are after big thoughts of God. Even though the Trinity is one of the most difficult concepts to understand because there is no illustration that one can come up with to help us to understand what the Trinity is like. But when you have a spare moment later on, Google the, the, the shield of the Trinity, which is a helpful diagram that sort of illustrates what we mean here that God is one and yet three distinct persons. But our minds want to think that there are three gods because that's much easier to understand. Yet Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God and yet three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And speaking of the Son, we tend to think that the Son must be, must be created Right, because if you are a son, then that means you were begun. That means that you had a beginning, but that's not what it means. We tend to, actually, what we believe is that the son is eternally begotten. But this is a way that we distinguish the three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, what does this even matter? Why does it matter for us to have an accurate understanding of the Holy Trinity? Well, for one, we are after having big thoughts of God. We don't want to think little of God. Because thinking little of God can also lead to heretical teaching that leads us astray and certainly will determine where we find ourselves when we have moved on from this life onto the next. Because we don't want to believe, for example, in modalism, that God is just one person, but he makes himself or reveals himself in three different ways. That's not consistent with the scriptures. We don't want to believe in partialism, that each person of this trinity is only one-third of God and that one, only when they are together are they fully God. That's not it either. We don't want to believe in Arianism that teaches that Jesus is a created being because all of these attack the very nature of God. So this matters because we want to have an accurate understanding of who God is but also because understanding the Trinity also reflects on how we live our lives as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ. In John 17, 20, Jesus praying for believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what Jesus is saying here, that the unity within God's people functions as a kind of apologetic to the world, it's a testament to the world that this is where the presence of God is. 
when there is this unity. And this unity doesn't come from us. This unity comes from Jesus himself. It comes from the Spirit of God. It testifies to the existence of God. Certainly people can find commonality and unity and many things in the world, whether it's sports, whether it's hobbies, whether it's a common cause. But there is no unity like the kind of unity that Jesus Christ births into his church. It is a unity like no other. It is a community that is characterized by serving one another, by encouraging one another, by correcting one another, by strengthening one another, by forgiving with one another, reconciling with one another, and loving one another. So if we want to have right and vague thoughts of God that requires us to think rightly about the Trinity, because if Jesus says that he and the Father are one, and he intends to have a church that is one also, that we also want to imitate that oneness. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably. We're not only after unity within one another in God's church, but we are looking to live peaceably and strive for unity wherever we can, even outside of these walls. Whether it is in our own homes, whether it is in the workplace, Our task is to live peaceably, to live as a people who are in the pursuit of unity. And that requires a constant effort. And in many cases, it requires a great deal of wisdom, but the point is that this pursuit of peace and unity never ceases. Ephesians 4.1 it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The applicational thrust of this passage is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and that is the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is considering what Christ has done for us in his in love dying for us that we might be saved from our sins, and that this calling upon our lives comes with certain demands, and that is that we live our lives in a manner worthy of that calling with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that unites us to the holy union of the Trinity and also unites us to one another. The Spirit of God is the one who creates this unity that we have, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is up to you and I to continue to maintain that unity. Think of this unity as sort of a a delicate, blooming rose. We didn't create it. We didn't bring it about. But it's been given to us for us to maintain, to nourish, to keep, to protect, to water. But when we fail to walk in unity, when we might slander one another, when we fail to forgive, when we fail to repent of our sins, when we fail 
to walk in love towards one another, the petals of the rose just continue to fall and fall until you essentially have nothing left but the stem. But it is up to us to keep the flower of our unity blooming. And God blesses unity. God blesses a church that continues to walk in unity. How can God not bless such a church when he sees that people are serving one another and encouraging and loving one another and reconciling and forgiving one another? That is the kind of church that Jesus resides in. That is the kind of church that Jesus loves to bless. And so because of what Christ has done, because of the unity that is between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we want to have be a people who think highly of God, because it, essentially eternity demands it, or because our eternal destiny depends upon it, we want to be a people who have, who understand God rightly, and walk in a way that pleases Him. Regardless of how the world may define Christianity or evangelicalism, the way we distinguish ourselves from the rest is by having big thoughts of God and thinking highly of God and living the kind of life that those thoughts demand. <laughs>